begin with a quote this morning. We ended with it last week. Leon Morris wrote, It is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen in its true perspective. The fact of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, his coming again, the fact of Jesus Christ is the one all-important fact that sets all else that is in history, that is in our personal lives, in its proper perspective. And so we must never lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why this ultimate book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, begins with Jesus Christ and maintains a focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ throughout the entire book. It is really all about God's Son, Jesus Christ. As we come back to Revelation chapter 1 this morning, we're going to continue where we left off last week. And we left off last week looking at verses like John chapter 17, verse 24, to give us insight into the importance of the revelation of Christ's glory that we have in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And that's why I want to remind you of that again this morning. In John chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Jesus Christ pray for us today? Well, it is reflected in how he prayed for us then in that day, for Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we as his church are in very much the same position in God's plan as the first century church. And so Jesus prayed for his disciples in the first century, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To see the glory of Jesus Christ is the Christian life. That is the heart and passion of the Christian. It is what causes us to grow spiritually. It is what causes us to do good deeds. That it's only as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ through this mirror, dimly, as Scripture says, this imperfect faith that we have, that we can grow to become more like Him day by day. And so our study in the book of Revelation is not just a study of future events, but it's a study of the person and the works of Jesus Christ who is guiding all of history to the predetermined end that His Father has appointed. Let's keep that in mind as we continue throughout the entire book of Revelation, as we get into the nitty-gritty details of the judgments and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, let us never lose sight of the importance of the details in light of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'd like to read with you Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. This is what we spent our time last week looking into, and so we have to connect with this to go where we're going this morning. So let's remind ourselves. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Revelation 1, 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face 
was like the sun shining in full strength. And so, building on this revelation of the visual glory, the visual splendor of Jesus Christ, let us then go on to hear the words of Jesus Christ that are recorded for us then in the following paragraph in the rest of chapter 1. For, as in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, as in the experience of Christ's transfiguration on the mountain that Peter, James, and John were able to see 60 years before the book of Revelation, that the glory of Jesus Christ was shown to John then and shown to John here at the end of John's life for the same reason, that we might have impressed upon us as the disciples of John the importance of listening to Jesus Christ. When Christ's clothing was transformed, when his face shone with light and the cloud overshadowed them on the mountain of transfiguration, a voice came out of the cloud, the Father speaking, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And so as we last week looked into Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 16 and got to see through the words and the faith that opens up our minds to behold the glory of Christ, what is incumbent upon us, therefore, is to listen to him. How well are we listening to Jesus Christ? That is the key to everything. So, with that in mind, we're going to look into this morning, verses 17 through 20, on the words of Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to listen to? The book of Revelation, let me say this here in our introduction still, the book of Revelation is the red letter letter of the New Testament. All of the letters of Paul and of Peter and of John and James and the other apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are precious to us because they speak to us as Christians in the New Covenant, in the church, how we are supposed to conduct ourselves while we await the return of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is another New Testament letter. As we had in our scripture reading this morning, you heard the letter to several different churches there in chapter 2, which continues into chapter 3. And these are dictated words of the Lord Jesus Christ to each of the churches that has a message for each one of us. And really the whole book of Revelation is the last words of Jesus Christ to the church. And so many of those words are not just the words of John inspired by the Holy Spirit, but John writing down exactly what Jesus Christ said. I don't want to undermine the inspiration and authority of the non-red-lettered parts of our Bible, but I still want to highlight there's something special about the book of Revelation and these last words of Jesus Christ from heaven to us, his church, in the ultimate book of the Bible. So, let's take a look then at verses 17 through 20. Let's read those together now as we dive into the main portion of our text. You see our outline continuing from last week. Last week we looked at Christ's servant, John, Christ's concern, the churches, Christ's glory, which we just read in verses 12 through 16, and then today, picking up in verses 17 through 20, Christ's words. Let's read those together. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There is a lot in these words, and we're going to unpack the meaning of these words for us today. But ultimately, it comes down to this word of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am coming quickly. That's the message of the whole book. And these words are going to connect and tie into that message. But when you think about the last words of Jesus Christ, from the outset, I want you to have this in mind. I am coming quickly. Be ready. Those are the most important last words of Jesus throughout the whole book. Now, before we get into some of the words specifically, let's look at John's response in verse 17, the first part of verse 17, where we see what was the effect on the Apostle John, the beloved disciple who had spent years with Jesus Christ, who leaned on his breast at the Last Supper, what was his response to seeing Jesus Christ in his glory? Well, when he saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. All strength left him. He was completely overawed, overwhelmed in body and in spirit, drained because of the overpowering glory of God in Jesus Christ. You know, this is so instructive for us in humility. So often, the proud man is like the teaspoon boasting to the thimble that he holds more water when they are both in the presence of the mighty and vast ocean. Here we are this morning, in the presence of the mighty, vast ocean of the glory of Jesus Christ, infinite in its weight, infinite in its power. And how many of us feel that? How many of us recognize it, who live in an awareness of the overawing glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? so that it affects our speech, it affects our attitudes, it affects our humility. So that we're no longer comparing ourselves with one another and boasting and saying, well, I know more than this person, or I've given more, or I have done more. Don't boast as the teaspoon to the thimble, but give all glory and honor to the infinite ocean from which each one of us draws the very limited amount of glory that he disperses amongst us. Compared to infinite glory, we are all roughly equal. And so let's view each other as equals. Now, the other thing I want to notice here before we look specifically at his words are what he is holding in his hand. That's one thing we skipped over rather quickly last week. If you notice in the text in verse 16, back in the paragraph that's describing the visual splendor, it says, in his right hand he held seven stars. We didn't talk much about the seven stars last week because they're not really explained until we get down to verse 20 and they don't become super relevant until we get to chapters 2 and 3. But let's look at verse 20 where it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Let's take a, a moment to talk about what this means. First of all, he refers to this as a mystery in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars. And this, if you are a student of the book of Daniel, reminds you of what we find back in Daniel. Well, okay, this one too. I skipped this one a moment ago. This is a good one too, where you see that Daniel had the same response 
as the visual splendor of Christ in Daniel chapter 10 is so similar to what is displayed after his incarnation and his resurrection in Revelation chapter 1, then the response of Daniel and the response of John are the same. They both fall on their face in this unconscious state as all strength is drained from them and they are overawed by the glory of God. But to what I was referring to just now, in Daniel chapter 2, we back up a little bit and we see that in the opening vision, in the opening chapters where the first revelation of future events is made, Daniel speaks to the king and tells him there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So that word mystery connects with this word mystery here in verse 20. As Nebuchadnezzar was shown visions and there were symbols in the visions that were symbolizing certain things, certain events, certain actual people and places. So also in the book of Revelation, we're going to have visions about things that are going to take place and that these are revealed in mysteries, but God is the one who makes known the significance of these mysteries, even as God sent Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar to reveal to him what was signified by the vision. So God sends his angel to John to tell him what is signified in the visions that are contained in the rest of the book. And notice that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it pertained to what will be in the latter days, these mysteries about what will be in the latter days. And that connects with Revelation because you see in Revelation 1.19, write what you have seen, these visions, those that are and those that are to take place after this the things that take place after, what will be in the latter days. So Daniel and Revelation are following the same track. God has given us this book in order to help us understand what we're studying now. So you've got to read and understand Daniel. Can't make that point too strongly. And the very next verse in Daniel, Daniel continues, To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. That's exactly what Jesus is describing then in the book of Revelation. What's going to be after these things? And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. This is the language that we find here. You compare it in the Greek in Daniel and the Greek in Revelation, and you can tell where the Holy Spirit is drawing this language and making the connection as John writes it down. So I wanted you to see that, the mystery that is revealed by God about things that are going to take place. And one element of the mystery here are these seven stars that are in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And we see that he identifies the seven stars in verse 20 as the angels of the churches. And there's two ways, basically, to understand the angels of the churches. And one is to understand them as angelic heavenly beings. In support of this view that the angels of the churches are heavenly angels, we can mention some very strong arguments. Number one, angels are very prominent in the book of Revelation, and everywhere from chapters 4 through 22, angels, this word in Revelation, refers to heavenly beings. Also, angels are represented by stars in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. Revelation 9.1 connects stars with angels. And so the seven stars, the seven angels, just makes sense that he's talking about heavenly beings here. A third less strong argument is that there are in the Bible seeming indications that people and nations have guardian angels, that there are certain angels that God assigns to peoples and to individuals 
that have a special mission, a commission from God to look out for his interest in their lives and individually and corporately. And so it, it wouldn't be surprising then if churches also had an angel that was appointed by God to look out for God's interests in his church, which he's very concerned about. That's where he takes his stand among the lampstands. So those reasons give strong support for the idea that when Jesus refers to the angels of the churches, he's referring to heavenly beings. However, that's not the position that I hold, and I forgive people who hold that because these are good arguments. However, let me give you some, some what I think are even better arguments to see that the angels of the churches are human messengers and not heavenly messengers. Number one, messengers is used in the Bible to refer to people. You can go through the book of Acts and the Gospels and the New Testament letters, and while not as common, it is still common for human messengers to be referred to by this same Greek word, angelos, that we translate as angels. So just because the Bible says angel doesn't mean it has to be talking about a heavenly being. It could be talking about a human messenger, and you have to decide in the context whether it's talking about a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. So it's possible. That's not an argument for it. That just shows the possibility that this could be referring to humans, even though the English translation makes it sound like it's referring to heavenly messengers. But in this context, I believe that a letter carrier from these churches to John and back to the churches is what is in view because notice in chapters 2 and 3, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write in verse 1, and with each of the seven letters, he starts off that way. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. Now, it doesn't make much sense to me for God to send an angel to John to reveal things to the churches that then John writes to the angel of the church. And what, the angel of the church is supposed to, this heavenly angel is supposed to communicate the message to the church? Now, it makes more sense that you look at the chain of transmission that he's made a point of in this opening chapter, that the message comes from God the Father to Jesus Christ, to the angel, to John, to the churches. And the way that this letter from John, who's in exile on Patmos, would get to the churches is by messengers from those churches who had traveled to John to tell John how things were going and to minister to his need and to explain what was happening in his absence. And then John, when he receives these messengers, says, well, God has given me a letter for you to take back to your church. And this is what he told me to write to your church and your church and your church. And so it makes more sense in chapters 2 and 3 for these to be human messengers taking these letters to the churches rather than writing it to an angel. That doesn't seem to fit the context as well. Also, while stars is a reference to angels in numerous places in the Bible, stars can also be a reference to faithful Christians or faithful believers in God as it is in Daniel chapter 12 verse 3. Daniel's important background for the book of Revelation. And in Daniel 12, verse 3, the righteous people who are faithful to God are referred to as stars, shining like stars in the brightness of heaven. Also in the New Testament, we have references to messengers traveling from one church to another. And although this word angel isn't used to describe those messengers, you still get the idea that churches were sending messengers back and forth and it would be an appropriate word to describe them. For example, in 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul writes, As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, 
And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. Now, that's not the same word here, but it's the same idea. They are messengers of the churches, and you should welcome them and greet them and help them as messenger goes back and forth from church to church for the benefit of all. So for those reasons, I think that understanding the angels of the churches as men that these seven churches had sent to John are now coming back from visiting John with the book of Revelation that they've made copies of for each of their churches. Now, that was not super relevant to our thesis today, but something I just wanted to lay the groundwork for for our upcoming study in chapters 2 and 3. And it also is helpful for our study of the whole book to, from the outset, learn how to interpret symbols in the book of Revelation. That when we're talking about seven messengers of the churches, the number seven has a symbolic significance. As you know, throughout the Bible, the number seven is important to indicate a divine perfection. It's a perfection of God's completeness. And so, while the number seven is symbolic, it's also literal. There literally are seven churches. And so sometimes what you'll find for those who interpret numbers and other symbols in the book of Revelation is they set up a false dilemma. Very important that you learn to spot false dilemmas. And people will say, well, either it's symbolical or it's literal. Like, well, why does it have to be symbolical or literal? That's a false dilemma. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples. There were literally, historically, 12 disciples. But that was also symbolical. There's a reason why he chose 12 disciples, because that represents the nation of Israel in its fullness. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. So you don't have to deny the literal historical reference in order to understand the symbolic significance of that. Something can be symbolic and literal at the same time. So don't fall for the false dilemma that is often set up in understanding the symbolism in the book of Revelation. All right, with that said, we're ready to move on to the bulk, the heart of our study here this morning, and that is the words of Jesus Christ. We've looked at Christ's servant last week, his concern, which is the churches, Christ's glory, his visual splendor. Now let's focus in on his words in verses 17 through 20. And the first thing I want to look at in verse 17 is his command, fear not. As John is bereft of strength as he falls down unconscious like a dead man. Christ lays his right hand and speaks to him words of comfort. Now, when your heart begins to grasp the dread holiness of God, let me say that again. When your heart begins to grasp the dread holiness of God, fear is an appropriate response. So when Jesus says fear not, he's not saying it's inappropriate for us to fear the holiness of God. It's completely appropriate for us to fear the holiness of God. And it is Christ's place in his grace and in his mercy to relieve us of that fear and to cause us to be able to stand with him as a brother, as a friend. Not because he is diminished in any way, Not because we are full of unfair ideas about our own greatness and glory, but because of God's own grace, God's own mercy. He allows us to stand in the presence of the one who, by all rights, we should be dead when we come into his presence. Fear is appropriate, but God graciously removes that fear so that we can stand together as friends. Now, Christ's words of comfort here are very similar to the words that the disciples heard coming from Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry when they began to understand his overwhelming glory. Let's go back to the Mount of Transfiguration 
This passage in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so important for what we have here. It's the same situation, the same paradigm, that Jesus' glory is shown to John, and they fall down dead, and they're overawed, and they don't know what to do, and Jesus came and touched them. Notice that, just like he had here. He laid his hand on them, he touched them, and he said, rise and have no fear. May we also have some sense of God's overwhelming, majestic holiness that would cause us spiritually to faint before him and to be in need of an infusion of grace to be able to continue to maintain fellowship with him, even with a fuller awareness of his majesty and glory. Secondly, what you want to notice in Jesus' words here is how he describes himself as the living one. After saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, he says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And here, once again, we're going back to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar now, his quotation at the end of Daniel chapter 4, he receives his sanity back again after God humbled him and he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Notice that. When, da- when Nebuchadnezzar, king of the world, was humbled, when he looked out upon Babylon, his vast empire, and said, is this not Babylon the great that I have constructed for my glory? And God strikes him down and he's out in the fields eating grass like a cow. And then finally his reason returns to him. He recognizes, I'm a mortal man. And no mortal man is able to receive the power and the glory that belongs to the immortal God alone. That's the message of Daniel chapter 4. And that's what is in Jesus' mind, in his words, when he speaks to John and says, I became dead, but I'm alive forevermore. I am the living one. This is a statement about his right to rule. This is a statement about his power and his glory having an everlasting reign. As Nebuchadnezzar said, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is the dominion of Jesus Christ. This is the kingdom of our Lord, our Savior. The one who is standing among the churches today, whether you have eyes to see him or not. And again, in Daniel chapter 12, you come to the end of the book. And the man who was clothed in linen and this vision, this heavenly glory, who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. And so that's here, Jesus Christ. He says, I am the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Let's hear his words and recognize that only the immortal Jesus Christ can be king of kings forever. Well, one other verse here to keep in mind is in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 of our book, Revelation. And in Revelation 4, 9 and 10, you've got a scene into the throne room of God, very similar to Daniel's view of the throne room of God. And in that fourth chapter, it focuses on the Father. And the Father is sitting on his throne, and the living creatures, these angelic creatures, are giving glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne. And notice how it describes him. He lives forever and ever. And then the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Going back to Daniel and the kingdom of God that is everlasting because God is everlasting. Very important to have that eternal perspective 
by having our eyes fixed on the once dead, but never to die again, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comforts us then with the words that are there also in verse 18, I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is the holding place for the dead before final judgment. Death is a personification of that state that we all must enter into when our time on earth is done. And Jesus Christ, he died so that he might become Lord of both the dead and the living, as it says in Romans. And now, the one who has died and the one who is alive and lives forever and ever, he tells us, through John, John being our representative in this case, I got the keys. I have control over death. Satan tried to take the keys of death. He tried to have the power of death by being the murderer, the liar, who kills with his words. And we all feared death, and we were controlled by that fear of death, living in denial of our own death. And yet Jesus Christ has conquered, and now he speaks to you, and he speaks to me, and he says, Be still. The Lord is on your side. And he has the keys of death and Hades. You have nothing to fear of death when Jesus Christ lays his hand on you and says, fear not. That's pretty awesome. I mean, if we could just get that, that's revolutionary. Just believe that. You know, sometimes we think we have to understand everything in Revelation. You don't have to understand everything in Revelation. Just believe that. And it will transform you. You will live differently. You will live powerfully. You will be an overcomer if you just believe that. All right, so that doesn't mean we don't want to understand everything. Let's try to understand everything, but more importantly, let's believe what we understand. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Look at chapter 2 once again. We had it in our scripture reading. Chapter 2, verse 8. What does Jesus Christ say to the angel, the messenger, as I would read it, of the church in Smyrna? These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And why does he introduce himself that way to the church in Smyrna? Because in verse 9, I know your tribulation. And he says in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I've got the keys of death and Hades. So don't be afraid of Satan when he threatens to kill you. Don't be afraid of the governor when he threatens to kill you. Don't be afraid of the president and all of his forces when he threatens to kill you because Jesus Christ has the keys of death in Hades. Fear no man. Go through life with confidence and be faithful to him unto death. And God will give you the crown of life. Do you believe that? Look at verse 13. The next church, Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. But notice he shares that title to a lesser degree, but still sharing that title with Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Do not fear death. That's what Satan uses to try to capture you to do his will. If you fear man, you won't be able to be faithful to Christ. 
That's why Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last. I have the keys. And then we come to verse 19. Right, therefore. This is a key verse. Look at verse 19. Right, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Very easy to read over that because we're in the midst of this amazing revelation of the glory of Christ, the powerful words that he's speaking that have such impact. And then this verse kind of comes across as just kind of like incidental. But actually... Once you continue reading through the entire book of Revelation, you find out that this verse, which we could overlook so easily, is actually the hermeneutical key to understanding the book of Revelation. What do I mean by that? Well, here Jesus Christ gives us the three-part outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the things that you have seen. The glory of Christ that he's just recording in the previous verses. That's what he's supposed to write. Those that are. That's chapters 2 and 3 with the state of the seven churches. That's what is currently on Christ's mind, and that's what he's talking about, what is present tense. But then, the things that are to take place after this. That's the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 16. You say, well, Timothy, is that true? Is that something you can show me from the text? Well, here's what I just told you. Revelation 119 is the key to the book. Chapter 1, past. Chapters 2 and 3, present. Chapters 4 to 22, future. Well, look at chapter 4, verse 1. As we come to chapter 4, verse 1, we finish chapters 2 and 3, this introduction to the book, these letters to the churches. And how does the rest of the book start off? After this, I looked. Well, notice that after this. And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's chapter 1, this voice like a trumpet, said, come up here. This is Jesus' words. They should be red letters if you have a red letter Bible. And I will show you what must take place after this. And what do you have in the rest of the book? Well, Jesus Christ showing John what must take place after this. So chapters 2 and 3 are the present, the churches. Chapter 4 starts off with Christ showing us what's going to be in the future. Now that's the bulk of the book. And yet this three-part outline, chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, and chapters 4 through 22, revealed right there in Revelation 1.19. Now, people who interpret the book of Revelation... I'm talking about chapters 6 through 19, the bulk of the prophetic details in the book, who interpret that as yet being in the future, this is how we read Revelation 119, that it gives us this outline, this divinely inspired outline of the book. Not everybody reads the book like a futurist, like me, and not everybody sees Revelation 119 as being the key to understanding the outline of the book. That the book of Revelation, and this verse, is kind of like a Rorschach test, and depending upon your presuppositions, you're going to see it one way, and other people are going to see it another way, and they might argue over what it's actually a picture of. But I think Revelation 119 is our key, and I'm not the first to think that. I'm standing in a long line of tradition on this. Charles Feinberg said this, Chapter 1, verse 19 is the key of the book. It indicates the threefold plan of the prophecy, and it is the only safe guide to its correct interpretation. He's a futurist, like me. Mark Hitchcock, whose study of Revelation we enjoyed together in adult Sunday school a number of years ago, he calls this verse the inspired outline of the book. W.A. Criswell, another futurist interpreter of the book of Revelation, said, this verse is the grand foundation. This is the great starting point. This is the key to the meaning of this vast outline of God's future. And then John Walvoord, another pre-millennialist like myself, said, this outline is the only one 
which allows the book to speak for itself without artificial manipulation. And I agree with those statements, although I know there's good men who disagree with those statements. And we'll continue to argue it for our good and for God's glory the best that we can. There are six or seven different ways to outline the book, but this is how I'm going to outline the book for us in our study. This is a futurist outline of the book of Revelation, someone who interprets the specific prophecies in Revelation 6 through 19 as still in the future. And so at the end of our study today, the last 10 minutes that we have, I want to do a review of the four major ways of viewing the prophecies in the book of Revelation. There's those who view them as being in the past. This is the preterist position. Preter means past. There are those who view it as being fulfilled throughout all of church history, including this present century. And that's a historicist reading, that starting in Revelation chapter 6, events in church history began to be told, and then you can follow through, and it leads all the way through the centuries up until the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the historicist reading, seeing it as being fulfilled throughout the whole present church history. But I'm of the futurist school, as I said, that thinks Revelation 6 through 19 are prophecies that are not yet fulfilled, that they are yet to be fulfilled in the coming tribulation period. And then the idealist position is that it's not past, present, or future, that that these are just symbols of the spiritual victory of God over evil. Four different ways of reading the book. Now, most liberals read the book as preterists. If you go to a liberal church and someone would actually talk about the book of Revelation, they probably have a preterist view that it all happened in the past. Now, most historicists, well, there's a lot of different schools of historicists. The reformers, like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they were in the historicist school. And also, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists view the book of Revelation from this historicist position. And then the futurists are mostly premillennial dispensationalists like myself, That's the futurist group. And then the idealism or the timeless view is largely the reformed or the covenantal school of theology, men like Vodi Bauckham. Now, as I will teach these chapters from the futurist position, I think it's only fair that I deal with some of the largest critiques of the futurist position at the outset. We're still in chapter 1. We're finishing up chapter 1. So this is where I want to talk about what is the Achilles heel of the futurist position, where are we most susceptible to attack and where the attack is strongest? I want to talk about that. Just one quick other slide here to review. Preterism sees it as either taking place during the time of Nero or during the fall of Rome, and the liberals will talk about which view of preterism they think is the correct view. There's other people besides the liberals, but I'm just saying them for an example. The historicist view, this is the view of the reformers, and they read a lot of papacy into that from this whole church age, and that you can identify certain things in the book of Revelation with the rise of Islam or other historical events. And yet our view is the futurist view that this is going to take place during the 70th week of Daniel, which is yet in our future from where we are today. All right? So, what is the most powerful critique of this futurist view of the book of Revelation? And that is, in chapter 1, back up to the first couple of verses, Jesus Christ tells John, and through John, all of us, that these things are going to take place soon. Notice that word soon in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ 
which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. This looked like soon to you? We've had, you know, 20 centuries. That's not soon. And so, therefore, the futurist position can't be right because these things were going to happen soon. So they must have been already happening. It's got to be the preterist or the historicist view, or the idealist view would also fit with soon, since they don't really have to have a historical consequence. But also notice the end of verse 3, where it's reiterated, Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. A different word, but basically the same meaning, soon and near. And this emphasis on soon and near, it continues throughout the whole book. And it ends on a strong note of soon and near. Come with me to Revelation chapter 22. The end of the book, the last chapter. Just as it begins with this strong emphasis on soon and near, so it ends with a strong emphasis on soon and near. Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. And again, verse 20. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So what are we supposed to make of the strong, repeated emphasis at the beginning, middle, and especially at the end on these prophecies coming to pass soon? Does that mean that the futurist position is untenable? That's the question. Apocalypse near, this idea of soonness, can be read these four ways. This is how Christians have dealt with this dilemma that the book of Revelation says that Christ is coming soon and yet, here we are, 2,000 years later. Well, this is actually a problem not just for futurists, but it's a problem for all Christians who believe that Jesus Christ is coming because notice in chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, I am coming soon. So it's not just the seals and the trumpets and the bowls that are going to happen soon. But it's the coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 20 that also is going to come soon. So if you're going to say that soon means within a few years, well, that is not just a problem for the futurist. That's a problem for everyone who believes in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so for people who love the scriptures and love Jesus Christ and believe, these three other explanations for what soon can mean in the book of Revelation, let's consider those. According to 2 Peter 3.8, from the Lord's perspective, a thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years. In fact, let's go to Second Peter chapter 3. Back up from Revelation to Peter's second letter, right before the letters of John. We have the two letters of Peter at the end of our New Testament. And Second Peter chapter 3 is very relevant to this discussion. And there, Peter tells that he is writing that the churches might remember in verse 2, 2 Peter 3, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The apostles and prophets have been telling us 
what is going to happen, and we need to remember it. Verse 3, knowing this first of all. Now, when someone says first of all, that's a, a marker of importance. And when the Holy Spirit says first of all, you need to pay attention. That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So I might be more convinced by the critics of the Bible arguing that soon means within a few years and that Jesus didn't come within a few years and so where is the promise of his coming if the Bible itself didn't predict that people were going to be saying that. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Notice verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. You know, the world is deliberately ignoring that fact. That the earth was formed out of water and through water and that by means of these, the world that was perished, that was deluged with water. Does the world today deliberately ignore the historicity of the worldwide flood? Yes, exactly. And so, in the same way, they deny that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the world as he says in the book of Revelation. But, verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, you can read about it in Revelation, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, which is what all Revelation is about, and do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. A thief comes suddenly. A thief comes unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, Suddenly, at any time, it's imminent, it's potential. There's nothing in God's prophetic plan that has to happen before the events of the book of Revelation come to pass. And God has so written the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ so spoke to the disciples in the Olivet Discourse, the New Testament was written from a perspective that was to put Christians in every age, starting with the first century and the generation of the apostles, all the way down through our day and our age, to put us on the edge of our seats of expectation. That's why the book of Revelation says, soon. That's why it says quickly. Not because it was going to happen within a few years, but because Christ wants us to expect it to happen. That it can happen within the next few years. Listen to me. There's a lot of overreaction among Christians to the date setters and the newspaper prophecy experts that are in the world, and the overreaction perhaps is more dangerous and worse than what they are critiquing. Because what are they critiquing? They're critiquing people who are expectant. They're critiquing people who are looking. They are critiquing people who are watching for the signs because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they can't wait for all of his words to be fulfilled and for him to receive the power and the glory that belong to him alone. 
Now, do they get a little overeager in their expectation as far as what specific events tie into what specific prophecies? Yeah, there's a lot of mistakes that have been made on that front. But don't react to those mistakes and say, we shouldn't read the book of Revelation with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. You should. That's exactly why Jesus wrote it the way he wrote it. Because he wants you to think that he's coming. And as soon as you start to think, he's not coming. It'll be delayed. All those date setters, all those prophecy experts, they've been wrong so many times. Let's just not even think about that. Let's not even talk about that. Let's just go to sleep. That's exactly what Jesus warned you not to do. Read Matthew chapter 24. Read Matthew chapter 25. And what does Jesus say? You don't know when I'm coming. Be ready. I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. Just because it seems like it's been a long time. He told us. He warned us. It's going to seem like he's delayed. Do you have oil in your lamp? Are you ready to hear the shout of the bridegroom? Or are you going to be like those who said, we don't need extra oil. We can have time to prepare once things start to get more obvious. You won't have time. You be ready now or you're going to miss out. That's Jesus' words, not mine. So soon means suddenly. Soon means it can happen at any time. And I think you know, several of these explanations are all correct. Ed Hinson, who wrote an excellent commentary, he said this, the problem is that each generation tends to assume that it is the terminal generation and that the end will come in their lifetime. That's not a problem. That is exactly what Jesus wants. He wants you to think you're the last generation before Jesus Christ comes back. He wanted John to think he was the last generation before he came back. He wanted the 2nd century church, the 3rd century church, the 4th century church, the 5th century church, every generation of the church. He wanted them to think you're the last generation. I'm coming back. Don't ever lose that mindset. If you get anything from the study of the book of Revelation, get that. Is Jesus coming soon? Yes. He's coming suddenly. He's coming unexpectedly. He's coming like a thief in the night. And the events of the book of Revelation are the very next thing that's going to happen in God's prophetic plan, and it can happen anytime. A related critique is that futurism makes everything after chapter 3 irrelevant to all but that final generation of believers. If that is so, then why do futurists love the book of Revelation and teach and preach the book of Revelation more than anyone else? If our position makes it irrelevant, why do we love it so much? People ask the question, why does God tell us about the Great Tribulation if we're not going to be there? You guys who believe in the preacher of rapture, you don't even think you're going to be there. Why does God tell you about it? Well, why do we read about the Old Testament judgments? I wasn't there. To get to know God. To fear God. We can learn about God from his future judgments, just like we can learn about God from his past judgments. Are you saying the past judgments of God are irrelevant to me because I wasn't there? Why did God write them down? It's a stupid argument. Another attack against futurism is that futurism gets bogged down in speculation about all the details and misses the main point of the book of Revelation. Now I ask you, from the way that I've started preaching the book of Revelation, do you think I've missed the main point 
of the book of Revelation. Do you think it's possible to care about the details in God's prophetic word and still care more about the big idea, the main point? This is a false dilemma. Beware the false dilemma. Say, well, if you care about the details, you don't care about the big picture. You can care about both. You know, all those prophecies in the book of Daniel about Antiochus, are they irrelevant to us? Should we cut them out of our Bible? Should we only care about what the big picture was and not look at any of the details? Details are important. Details make up the big picture. Take all the details out of a picture and what do you have? Nothing. You got two hands. You can hold on to the details of the prophecies and the big picture. Don't fall for that false dilemma. Vodibachum really made a big mistake there in critiquing futurism with that argument. All right, so let's conclude. What is the big picture? Even if I disagree with beloved brothers over how to interpret these specific detailed prophecies in the book of Revelation, I'm thankful that we can agree that the point of the book is to encourage us as Christians to remain faithful to Jesus Christ at all times as we await the return of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. The final message of the Lord Jesus Christ to us that we must always remember and never forget, I am coming and I'm coming soon. That's the big idea. Here we are. We read it earlier. Revelation 22.7 Behold, I am coming soon. These words are faithful and true. Jesus says, a few verses later, reiterating, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. If there's one thing you're sure about, be sure of this, that Christ is coming soon. Christ is coming soon.